Hebrews chapter 8, of course. And I'm going to just read once again the two verses uh, that uh, we are sort of using as a thematic for uh, one of the two themes of uh, Hebrews 8 through 10. Hebrews 8 through 10 is about the tabernacle and it's about covenant. And the two are woven together. We've been talking about tabernacle the last couple months and then we'll be talking about covenant uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks. Um, we'll get to it. But I want to finish up this first. <clears throat> Hebrews 8. Now if Christ were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Everything about the tabernacle was a copy and shadow of heavenly things. It pointed forward to the reality of, of, uh, of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It all pertains to the new covenant that we are a part of. They're a copy and shadow of heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. See that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Everything about that tabernacle was a type or a symbol of something real about God and his relationship with his people that was revealed in the New Testament. We've been going through some of the furniture of the tabernacle to unveil aspects of God's reality as revealed in the New Testament. And I want to continue that here this morning. But first, let's pray. Father, you, you overwhelm us. You just overwhelm us. I pray, Lord God, that you'd, by the foolishness of preaching, overwhelm us again. I don't know how you'd do that, but you always seem to show up and, and manage it. And we give you all the glory, we give you all the praise for it. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's not by fancy words, but it's by your Spirit, says the Lord. Lord, that the mountains in our lives are removed and the walls come tumbling down and the shackles come off of our minds and spirits, Lord, and I pray this morning that you just once again show us a glimpse of yourself, Lord. Pull back the cloak and show us your heart. And I pray, Lord God, that that be a healing thing, a powerful thing, a magnificent thing here this morning, but I know for sure that there's nothing I can say that would ever make that real, that would ever communicate that, Lord, so you're going to have to really make up the difference here. Be present, Lord. In your name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Last week we talked about the walls of the tabernacle, the walls that surround the tabernacle. We've talked about the Holy of Holies, and then we've talked about the holy place just outside of the Holy of Holies. And now we're going to finish up this series by talking about the outer court. And the outermost part of the outer court were these, were these walls that went all around the tabernacle. They're seven and a, high, seven and a half feet high, 100 feet long, and 75 feet across. That was the dimensions uh, of the uh, tabernacle. You couldn't see over them. You couldn't crawl under them. And they were made of pure white. They were, they're, they're, the color is pure white. And what we said last week was that in the hot, glaring sun of the desert, as these white, this, this white, shining sheets would be hitting the eyes of the people, it would remind them, New Testament scholars agree, that what this is a type of, what this is a shadow of, what this is a pointer to, is God's holiness. The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. 
It denotes his radiance, his splendor, his greatness, his magnitude, his majesty, his sovereignty, his unfathomable wisdom, his unspeakable power. What we showed last week was just by looking at the, the creation. The Bible says that the invisible things of God, even his eternal power and Godhead, can be clearly seen by the things which he has made. So we looked at some of the things which God has made. Just to go, wow, what a creator. The magnificence of this creation, the trillions and trillions of stars, the billions of light years uh, across that it is, so far as we can know it, just the magnitude, the size, the complexity of this cosmos is breathtaking. It, it's awe-inspiring. And now to know that all of that was created by the word of his mouth and it's up, upheld every second, every molecule throughout the cosmos is upheld every second because God's thinking about it. The Bible says in Hebrews 1 that he holds all things together by the word of his power. And if the creation is this incredible, if the creation is this unthinkable, thinkable, if, this, if the creation is this overwhelming, what are we to think about the creator? Amen? It just blows your mind. And it shows forth the glory of God, the magnitude of, the magnitude of God, the majesty of God. That's what the, everything about God is surrounded and is enveloped by this majestic presence, the sovereignty and glory and splendor of the God who dwells in inapproachable light. And what it means for us believers is this. God is not just to be a buddy-buddy, sort of casual acquaintance sort of a thing. We must always remember the infinite difference between God and us. He is God. And that's got to install in us a profound sense of reverence and awe. And to even begin to think about the glory of God, the sovereign God, is to immediately feel unworthy to be in His presence and to realize your smallness. And it is overwhelming. But now this morning I want to talk about a, another aspect of this wall. And that is that there was a door. And just behind the door, as you came into this outer court, there was the wall there, and, the wa and, and there was the door there, and it was wide enough for anybody to enter. And right inside that door, for everyone to see, as you were on the outside of the tabernacle looking in, you could see this, there was an altar. What I want to say about this door and about this altar, as crucial and essential and non-negotiable as the bigness and strangeness and sovereignty of the God and inapproachable light is, as Crucial as that is, what I want to say about this this morning is at least that crucial. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, you know the teaching. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. I am the door. He calls himself the door. If you want to get to the Father, that Father that no man can see and live, the Father of, of infinite greatness, if you want to get in on the Father, I'm the door to do it. This is the access. And the door represents Jesus Christ, God's eternal invitation to anyone who will come in to come in. And just beyond the door is the altar, which of course stands for, the, for God's sacrificial heart and sacrificial love, where he's willing to do anything to make it possible for us to fellowship with this all-holy God. It represents Jesus Christ. There's a sermon, and now you can all go home. You know i got a couple more things to say about it. In fact, I want to unpack this a little bit trusting the Lord to, to drive home this truth, which we all know, to drive it home in, in maybe a, a more powerful way. And I want to do it by talking about something about God's power, something about God's magnitude. I think we oftentimes misunderstand it. 
And I want to get in on this a little bit. And I want to do that by sharing a little bit of my story. And I've shared this several times before in church. Uh, but I want to share it again. It gets at the point I want to make. It is this. When I was a kid, and some of you know, six, five, six years old, in Lansing, Michigan, I uh, came to the profound awakening, the realization that my stepmother, who was raising me at the time, did not love me. Uh, she was an uh, angry woman with a lot of issues, but as a little kid, you don't think about that. She had abusive tendencies. She was physically abusive. Uh, she was emotionally abusive. And it was a bad situation. I many times would want to run away from home. In fact, many times I did run away from home. But when you're five or six years old, you just don't really have the wherewithal to stay away from home. And around supper time, I'd always go back home. Sure that for sure tomorrow I was going to stay away. But sometime, five or six years old, out in my back creek, by, by, by my creek, uh, this creek I had in the backyard, I, I remember that very clearly I just made the decision that mom doesn't like me. That's all there is to it. And if she's not going to like me, I'm not going to like her. And um, I shut the door on that relationship. I shut the door on that. And there was no place for me to run. There was no place to hide. I remember thinking these thoughts in a five-year-old, six-year-old kind of way. There's no place to go. There's no place that's safe. The world's a very scary place and it's full of pain. And what are you going to do in a situation like that? I remember thinking to myself, I've got no choice. I just got to go through it. I just got to go through it. There's nowhere I can go. But what a little soul does in a situation like this, and some of you can relate to this, is that the soul was made for love. The soul was made at least to survive, and it will do whatever it can do to survive. And so what it basically does is I look back on it now as an adult is this. The kid looks around and says, what are my resources? What do I have to work with? How am I going to get through this thing? What have I got available? What I found was I had a really good imagination. I could create worlds. I had a profound imagination, and I had a big thought world that I just couldn't share with anybody because I stuttered so bad, and they all thought I was weird, and I thought about weird things, but it was mine. At least I had power over this. When you're powerless, you find, you try to carve out some survival space in which you had power. And so I could have an imaginative world in which I was validated as a person, in which I had power, and I had a thought world in which I was validated, and I had a wit. I had a wit about me, and I could use that to my advantage. So I closed the door on this relationship, and you hit upon a survival strategy. What you do there is you find a place that's safe. I made up my mind that no matter what she did, no matter what she said, it wasn't going to hurt. The door is closed, and I don't even care what you do. It's not getting in. And I can wipe up my own blood on the ground as you're sneering at me, but I want you to know this at least. I don't shed a tear. Do you see this? It's not going to hurt. It doesn't hurt. You're not getting through. Go ahead, keep on trying. Why don't you even try harder? But it's not getting through. Because I got a place I want to. I can't run away from home, but I can. And I got my world, and you're not a part of it, and you'll never be a part of it, and I'm safe here. And you set up those boundaries. You set up those walls. You shut the door. And you find ways. People who have been shamed, or people who have been demeaned, and all of us, I think, to some degree in a fallen world, have things like this. You look at your resources. You say, what do I got going for me? I also had the Virgin Mary as a little Catholic boy. She was the one safe person in my life. And I leaned on her big time. You look at your resources, what, what's available here? And you hit upon a strategy to survive. I found a way that I could 
have power over people, how to make kids in the classroom laugh, how I could be the bad kid. I got to get some kind of life. That's a non-negotiable need. I got to get some kind of attention. So I found a little way in first and second grade to survive a strategy, a way to manipulate the environment to get stuff. That's what people do when they're in these situations. People have been shamed in whatever way. The need of the soul doesn't get met, and so you look at your resources and you find a way to use it. You find a way to operate in your environment such that, you, that something is going to come your way, some validation, some power is going to come your way. So some people do it by being autocratic. Some people do it by having, being, being intimidating. They hit upon a strategy. The strategy works. It was one of the resources that were there. They carve out a survival space, they, they, and they have power over their environment. They create a world that's a little bit less scary. The world's out of control, but you find a little place where you have power, and that gives you control, and that validates you. Some people, they just use their resources as defense mechanisms, keeping people at bay. One of the most profound shows I've ever seen in my life is this show called uh, Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you've seen this. It is uh, a powerful, powerful show about a guy who just used his massive intellect to guard himself from people because of the wounds and the scars in his life that were there. You find something that's going to help you survive, some way that's going to make it work. You close the door on relationships and you opt for a different kind of a power. It's a power over things, a power to control things, a power to make things safe, a power to get your way. The thing that's really sick about our world, and it just shows how wounded our world is, how fallen the world is, is that it actually lifts up this kind of power. Oftentimes people who come from these backgrounds, if they don't get healed, if they don't discover the love of God towards their soul, which their soul was created to receive, what they end up doing is become specialists in control, specialists in manipulating the system. These are the people with power. We define power in this world usually as power over another. Power to control another. Power to dominate another. Power to affect another. Power to get your way. And these are the CEOs of the companies, these are the leaders of the banks, these are the presidents of the United States. They find a way to get things done by having power over another. It's the power of the world. It's a zero-sum game. What I mean by that is this. It has to exist in competition with another. You carve out a survival space of your own. You have power to the degree that the person you're in a relationship with doesn't have power. You have power to the degree that the door is closed. They can't affect you, but you can't affect them. That's what the world means by power. Power to dominate. Power over another. And the thing is, is it looks like strength. It looks like strength. It feels like strength. I'm powerful. For me, I, I went all the time growing up. I don't ever remember crying after that event. Not with anything she did to me. I wasn't going to cry. It looked strong. Things could happen, but I didn't care. I was above it. This doesn't affect me. The door is closed. And it looks like strength, but it's not strength. It's profound weakness. Profound weakness. It's hurtedness. It's woundedness. And anytime people opt for power over another, power to control another, it comes out of some center of insecurity, center of weakness. They're protecting something, guarding something. They feel that they can only have power by having another, not, another person not have power. It's a profoundly weak husband who has to resort to some kind of intimidation tactic or even physical tactic to control his wife. That's not macho. That's weakness. That's fear written all over it. The person who in a relationship needs to control things because they're just sure that if anyone has a choice to leave, they will leave. So you try to take away their choice, and you're probably good at it by now. You shame them. You, you know when to power. You know, you know how to control people so they don't leave you. Why? 
It looks like you're really clever. It looks like you're really good. It looks like you're building a secure world for yourself. But you're scared. You're hurting. You're wounded. There's still a six-year-old in there who doesn't want mom to leave. And this is your way of doing it. It's weakness. It's not strength at all. Parents who maybe need to over-control their kids. Because it's not a sign of strong parenting. I told you to get back in that room or whatever. It's... You take away choice because you're afraid of what will happen if they have choice. And there needs to be, this isn't, unilateral control isn't bad in and of itself. It's just not what the world is made out of. It's just not what we should be relating with. And you need areas of it, but as the kid grows up, you need to be investing them with some power, some choices to become persons. To be a person means you have, you're giving them some power, some say-so to make their own decisions. The good news is that in Christ, there's healing. Amen? The good, good, beautiful news is this, that whatever, whatever else has happened in your life, you were made for the love of Jesus Christ, and everything else was a prelude to that. Everything else was supposed to point in that direction. And whether it did or not, at this point, if you're an adult, it doesn't really matter, because now the Holy Spirit can make the connection for you. Amen? The, the Lord, it's when we receive the love of God, which the soul was created for, the Lord can make that relationship safe. The Lord stands at the door, the doors that we shut, and he knocks, and he says, let me enter. He wants to get into the life. He wants to get past the, the boundaries and the strategies and the tactics that we use to keep people at bay, to make the world a safe place. And when the love of God gets there, now the soul begins to get healthy. There's no internal fortress you've ever developed, no strategy you've ever hit upon that the Lord can't heal you from. I don't care how bizarre, how bad, how wounding it has been, the Lord can heal you from that. As His love pours into you, there's a wholeness that comes. There's a strength that comes. And now there's a new kind of power that's available to you. And this is what the Lord calls us to. Out of a strength, out of a strength we can begin to open the door to one another. That's not a weakness, that's a strength. It takes a strong person to be vulnerable. It takes a strong person to allow for intimacy. It takes a strong person to open the door. It takes a strong person to risk stuff with other people. And as the Lord gives us that love and makes that secure, we know He's not going to go away. There's a wholeness and a strength that can come into our life that allows us to begin to relate to each other like that, to get healed from the wounds that were there and the scars that were there and the defenses that were there and to begin to move in a genuine relationship. And now... Instead of having a zero-sum game where I define power as me against you, now there's a new kind of a power. It's a relationship power. It's not a me versus you. It's an I and you. It's the power of we. It's the power of us. It's the power of intimacy. It's the power of vulnerability. It's the power of love, praise God. And that's a far, far, far greater power than the kind of power that the world looks up to and worships. It's not power over. It's power with. It's not power to dominate. It's power to cooperate. It's not a power just to influence, but it's a power to be influenced. It's the power to let things matter to you. It's the power to be able to be hurt and still go on surviving and to know you're going to go on surviving. That is strength in the kingdom of God. That is courage in the kingdom of God. That is love in the kingdom of God. And that is what the Lord calls us to. And he enables it to happen by loving us with an unconditional love. And that's how we grow and get healthy. This is why the Bible talks about the body of Christ as a new community. A new community supposed to look very different than the community of the world. In the body of Christ, all the kind of strategies and tactics and classification systems that, that, that the world uses to put one person in power over another in the feudal zero-sum game that will ultimately annihilate the world. See what Pakistan and India are doing, they're playing a zero-sum game. 
You know, for me to be in power, you can't be in power. So I've got to get more nuclear warheads than you. It ends in destruction. The body of Christ is to have none of that. That's not the game we're to be playing. But as we get life from Christ, there's a different kind of a power. It's the power of we, the power of us, the power of vulnerability. That's why Paul says that in Christ, you know, it's like this. It blows my mind when I read this in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, husbands. Now these husbands, you've got to know, own wives. They, that's part of their property. They've got their house. They've got you know, their horses and they've got their wives. That's their most you know, precious property. So now they become Christians. And what does Paul do here? He says, you heads of the household. You're the head, right? Boss. You get your way. I get to decide what goes on here. You don't. That's what the world thinks of power. Zero-sum game. Husband has power to the degree that the wife doesn't have power. Paul introduces a whole new paradigm here. He says, husbands, head of the households, love your wives. Ephesians chapter 5, loves your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy and blameless and spotless. In other words, when they really don't deserve us, when, when, they're, when they seem spot, spot full to you, okay, when they are not blameless to you, now, you show your authority. Here's real power. Here's real authority. Here's real manliness. You submit yourself. Come underneath her. Show her your love. Lay down your life for her. Hold her up. Live to give her worth, just like Christ lives to sacrificially give the church worth. That is manhood, Amen. That's manhood. The Arnold Schwarzenegger, flex your muscle, get a loud voice and intimidate. That is wimpiness. But Paul gives us here what real power is. It's the power to love. It's the power to empower. To give worth away. Not detractive in the zero-sum game. I need more power I take from you. But rather, it's a totally different paradigm. And so the body of Christ is to be. Amen. That's why Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 3, you know, in, in the body of Christ, he says, all of them baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. You wear the Christ garment. And what that means, praise God, is that now there's no more male or female. There's no more slave or free person. There's no more rich or poor. There's no more Jew or Gentile, praise God. But in the body of Christ, there's a new paradigm here. All of the system of classifications, all the tactics that the world uses to say this person has power over another, all of those things in the body of Christ are done away with, praise God, because no one's getting life from it anymore. The, 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 the distinctions on the basis of the race and the distinctions on the basis of economy and the distinctions on the basis of social strata, all of them in the body of Christ are right, wiped away, and now our doors are to be open to one another. Not power over, but power with. There's place in the body of Christ for leadership. There's got to be leadership. There's place in the body of Christ for authority. There's got to be authority. You don't have... 3,000 people all leading, that is this prescription for chaos. But it's, out, it's not a dictatorial kind of thing. It's not a get life from having power over another kind of a thing. It's a God-equipped, gifting kind of thing. And ultimately, it's leading by service, by submitting your life to another. That, in the kingdom of God, is real power. It takes a strong, far stronger person to have a door open and have the power to be vulnerable and to risk being hurt than it does to live your life with the door closed as a scared six-year-old trying to keep people out. Now here's how this all relates, if it does relate to the tabernacle. You wonder where I'm going with all this. But it seems to me, it seems to me this, and I just got to shoot straight here, but our world worships, eulogizes this unilateral power. It is what we mean by power. A powerful person. That's always the person who can control. We just exalt this. This is what we respect. Uh, we, we, we just sort of worship it. And it seems to me that this has affected people's, many people's idea on God. How is God powerful? 
And this affects the way you think about God, which affects your relationship with God. It's a very, very important topic I'm talking about here. I believe that the world's understanding of power has to a large degree affected the way Christians have and still do think about God. One of the main attributes throughout church history that have been applied to God is his immutability. His immutability. St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, and others talked about the immutability of God. And that doesn't just mean that God's not fickle. It doesn't just mean that God's character doesn't uh, wax and wane like human beings. When they meant immutable, they meant untouchable. They meant unmovable. They mean that nothing affects God. His doors closed. Another attribute they used to talk about was the impassibility of God. Impa we get the word passion from, from this. By impassibility, or sometimes they called it the attribute of apatheia. This, they borrowed it from the Stoics. We get the word apathy from this. They wanted to say that God is so great. God is so powerful. God is so grand. God is so magnificent that nothing in this world touches him. Nothing in this world affects him. He's above having emotions. He's above having tears. St. Thomas Aquinas even said he's above having love. In fact, the relationship between God and the world is real to the world, but not to God. God only knows himself. He doesn't know things outside of himself. Why would he concern himself with that? It's the impassibility of God. And they saw that as an attribute of greatness. He's so great, so up there. He's untouchable. His door is closed. He's unmovable. Nothing affects him. In fact, they went so far as to say, this is what this debate this last week was about, and we're going to have tapes, about, uh, if you want interested in that, in the next couple of weeks. I was involved in this debate, and it was, on, it was, it was right relevant to this topic. God is so great, he controls everything. He's so great, unilateral power here. He always gets his way. He's so magnificent, there isn't a molecule that moves that doesn't move by his bidding. Everything that happens, happens according to his predestined will. It's a zero-sum game here. You see, God is powerful to the extent that we're not powerful. Since he's all-powerful, we're, we're zero power, so he controls everything. You may think that you will stuff. You may think that you do stuff. You may even have the illusion that you affect God. But in the end, it's God who does everything. Everything that happens in world history is predestined from God, by God. Every evil that ever occurred, every child that ever got kidnapped, every woman that ever got raped, every person that's ever been beaten up, it's all part of the glory of God, you see. It's, God is glorified by such things. Every war that's ever been fought, every bomb that's ever exploded and mutilated somebody, it's all for the glory of God. Every sinner that's ever railed against God, every person that ever went to hell, God always gets his way. All things go according to the will of God, so somehow it's for the glory of God. And this was seen as an attribute of power. God is great. His door is closed. He does what he's going to do, and he doesn't want your input on it. In fact, it was all settled before the world ever began. I got two questions about this. I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody here, but I, I got two questions. Number one, what is praiseworthy about that? What is praiseworthy about that? It sounds to me like a stepmother God. It sounds to me like a God who exercises just unilateral control. It sounds to me like the divinization, the worship of what the world means by power. Power over another. Power to crush. Power to always get your way. It seems like the zero-sum game kind of a power. And what is praiseworthy about that? Especially when you look at the world and you ask, this is, what, this is the best he could predestine? I got trouble with that. <laughs> Just because you have the power to do something, is it praiseworthy to use it? I don't, it doesn't take any character to use the power that you have. Good, you can beat up your kid. Now that, that's really you know, great. You, know, you have the power to do that. 
Uh, is that praiseworthy? It doesn't take any character to have power. It doesn't take any virtue to have power. It doesn't take any wisdom to have power. You just got to have the power. I can sit up here and twi twickle my little, twi twitch my little finger here. I have the power. I have supreme power over you. You will do whatever I want. I can even do this. Oh, every finger obeys my every command. Great, I have the power to do that, but anyone who had an arm cut into his hand could be able to do that. You wouldn't praise me for that, would you? Look at the supremacy I have. It goes exactly what I want. What is glorious about that? It doesn't, that seems to me to be an insulting view of God. Yes, he holds all the cards. He has all the power. He created all the world. He could predestine everything he wanted to, but why think he would do such a thing and what would be praiseworthy about it? What's it, what is exalted about that? That strikes me, I'm sorry, but as being the most insecure view of God I can imagine. Who would need to control that? Well, when I look about at people who control, I, I see a lot of weakness, insecurity there. Okay, every molecule must obey my, my very will. I think God's a little more secure than that. The second thing, though, is what is biblical about this? What is biblical about this? It's true in Scripture. You have God predestining things. You have him unilaterally controlling things. That's virtuous. It's not a free-for-all. You've got to have, somebody has got to be in charge and control the parameters. And, and, you know, if you're a parent of a child, sometimes you're going to have unilateral control. The kids go in on the car, you don't ask for their decision uh, whether to go on the road or not. You pull them back. There's a time for it. But if you're a wise parent, you don't do that all the time. You don't control everything about them. And so in the Bible, when I look at it, I see God controlling some things, exercising unilateral authority in some places, but I also see this, a God who's against sin. How can you be against sin if you predestined it? A God who's against Satan. How can you be against Satan if you predestined it? A God who's against all forms of evil and suffering. How can you be against it if you predestined it? I don't get that. But even more profoundly, I see a God whose heart breaks. I see a God who, who is frustrated over the decisions that, that some people make. I see a God, the Bible says in Isaiah 49, who cries out, as a woman does in labor pains, over anguish at how his people are behaving. Because he wishes they could, would do differently, but they don't. How can a God who gets, who, whose, whose will is the only will ever be frustrated by what other people do? I see a God there who's got an open door. And he's saying, whosoever will come in, and I wish you all would come in. He tells us that explicitly. Which tells me this is a God who's so secure, he doesn't have to use all of his power. He empowers others. This isn't a unilateral world kind of power. It's the power of love, praise God. The power of relationship. The power that doesn't want to crush and make puppets out of others, but invest others with power. Even when it means that you might be vulnerable. Even when it means you might get hurt. Even when it means things might not go your way. And as I read scripture, this is a God who often grieves over the fact that it doesn't go the way that he would. And love, his heart can break. And this isn't a sign of weakness. If you think it's a sign of weakness, what are we got? Then you're thinking as the world thinks. But it takes a far, 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 far greater God to be so secure within himself and content within himself, he doesn't need to make puppets out of people. He doesn't, a God who's so strong, he's willing to be vulnerable. A God who's so great, he's willing to suffer pain. A God who's so great and so secure, he doesn't always have to get his way, but empowers others to do things. A God whose door is open to be influenced. I give you the power to affect me. I give you the power to even hurt me if that's the way you want to choose it. God invites us, for example, to pray. The Bible says we can pray, we can talk to God, and that makes a difference on God. Hezekiah changed God's mind by praying. It says it right there in Scripture, we influence God. Prayer gets things done. But if everything is just programmed according to God's eternal will, why pray? What difference can you make? The door is closed. That's not a sign of weakness that God says, 
open my life up to you, it's a sign of strength. A God who's willing to make himself vulnerable, even to the point, and this is what blows me away, even to the point of becoming one of us. The great God of the universe who holds all the cards, yes, has all the power, yes. He doesn't want to be an Arnold Schwarzenegger deity that just everything goes his way. He wants to be a God who enters into genuine relationship with others. And here's how bad he wants to do it. He becomes a human being. He comes down from heaven, forsakes all the glory of heaven, becomes a human being on this infinitesimally small planet with a bunch of rebels who think that they're God. And he's still in love with him. And he becomes a human being and he allows himself to be crucified. He gives us the authority to hurt him, to judge him, to punish him, to kill him. And he's willing to do it for the sake of love. That, praise God, is a strong God. Amen? Strong God. Hallelujah. An insecure deity would have avoided the cross. And here's the point I want to make. Here's what I'm driving at. God is glorious, power, unbelievable, wisdom, unimaginable, sovereign. The walls of the tabernacle show it. But you've got to know that it's not a closed tabernacle. There's a door there. And the door is God's heart saying, I want you to see on the inside here. I want you to see on the inside. I am God. That's true. I created the world. That is true. I do whatever I want. That is true. But what I want is for you to get on the inside of me. And the door is God's invitation to say, come in. And the altar there is God's invitation saying, I will do whatever it takes to have a love relationship with you. I will suffer for you. And the water basin we're going to talk about next week is the Lord saying, and I will clean you up if you will let me. I will clean you up and make you compatible with me. And you go inside the holy place and the candlestick is the Lord saying, I got light for you in the middle of this dark world. Will you let me give you light? Come on a little further. I'll give you light. And the showbread is there and it's the Lord saying, come a little deeper inside of me. Come and have a relationship with me and I will feed you. You can live off of my love. And the altar of incense is there and the Lord saying, come a little deeper and I'll fill your life with praise and I'll fill it with prayer and you'll be a sweet smelling aroma unto me and then he says come into my heart of hearts the inner core of my being the ark of the covenant and there we can have a try you can participate in my triune love and throughout eternity you can share in the ecstatic joy that is my own being this is a God who's opened up he's opening up his heart to us Calvary is God's heart being opened up to us and saying come here come in and when we think about God's power that's the kind of power we got to think about we look at the, let me put it like this. As you look at the magnificence of the cosmos and are overwhelmed by that, we've got to translate that sheer power into the power of love. Because that's how God wants to be understood. Yes, sovereign to all get out, but he's sovereign in love. So when you look at the grandeur of the cosmos, be impressed by it, but be even more impressed with the love of God that's revealed on the cross of Calvary. Translate the magnitude of the greatness of this power into the intensity of his love. How much does God love you this morning? Well, he loves you to the moon and back. How's that? You ever read that little kid's book? You know, I love you to the moon and back. God loves you to the moon and back. No, he loves you to the sun and back. He, does, does the bigness of the sun impress you? Well, be more impressed by God's love. In fact, we haven't even begun it yet. God loves you the 7 million light years that our galaxy cluster is. How's that? He loves you 7 million light years. No, no. How much does God love you? God loves you. How many stars are there? God loves you all the stars there are. God loves you trillions and trillions and trillions upon trillions of stars. That's how much God loves you. Are you overwhelmed by the, the, the number of stars that are out there? Multiply it times a billion and now know that that's how much God loves you. You've got to be more impressed by that. That's power, folks, because it's the power of love. 
God loves you to the edge of the universe, 15, 20 billion light years. He loves you to the edge of the universe. No, he, he loves you to the edge of the universe and back again. That's how much God loves you. No, he loves you to the edge of the universe, back again 10 billion times. That's how much he loves you. You look at the cosmos, you look at the stars, how many molecules exist? How many molecules is God holding in existence right now? How many neutrinos are flying around? Well, multiply it times 10 trillion, and that's how much God loves you, praise God. Translate the power into his love. And you want to say there's a part of me that wants to say that can't possibly be true. It can't possibly be true. But when I study astronomy, I say that can't possibly be true. That can't possibly be true. But I know this. I'm insulting God if I say that about the universe. And I'm insulting God if I say it about his love. God's greatness is manifested in the intensity of his love towards us more than it's manifested in the grandeur of the cosmos. Because that's the power that God, how God wants to be understood. Is the worship team around here? I want to just end with this. We got time. We always have time. Where is, there, is the worship team here? Worship team. Good. Will you come out here? We're looking for some help on the worship teams. If you, you guys, I'm going to do this. Um, last week we just sort of meditated on his greatness. I want to do that again, but now it's the greatness of his love. And I want to sing Jesus, lover of my soul. Can we get the slides? queued up for that. And as we sing it, think about his love towards you. Accept it. Receive it. It is true. Infinite love that dwarfs in significance the number of stars that there are, and it's got your name on it. Can you believe it? Receive it. Jesus, lover of my soul, just receive it. Bask in it. Let him begin to heal you. Let him begin to overwhelm you by the greatness of his love.